Hi, everyone, and welcome to Mission and Meaning, a monthly podcast that connects you with the important mission-related learning and work happening around our Sacred Heart community. I'm your host, Ben Su, Director of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Access, and a member of the Office of Mission, Culture, and Strategy. At the moment, we're in a five-part series that explores the theme of restoration, how it's connected to each of our five Sacred Heart goals, and how restorative practices are already powerfully present in many of our school spaces. This month, our guest is Matt Carroll. Matt is currently serving as the Campus Ministry Director at the PrEP. He's also a member of the Religious Studies faculty and has been involved in the PrEP's immersion and service learning programs. Prior to coming to Sacred Heart, Matt served in the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, which allowed him to work in LA's homeboy industries. Weaving together all these experiences and his own personal history, Matt will be speaking about the connections between restorative practices and our Sacred Heart Goal 3, educating to a social awareness that impels to action. My first exposure to restorative justice came long before I had the words to call it by name or a framework to understand what it is. I was a freshman in college, about to meet my father at Moakley Courthouse in Boston, where I grew up. I was 18 at the time, and I hadn't seen my dad since I was three years old, so when I say I was going to meet him, I mean it quite literally. I had no contact with him since I was a young child, so he was essentially a stranger to me, more memory than a man. My mom and dad had to meet to go over some paperwork in order to work out a new child support arrangement since I was grown but still a full-time student, now enrolled at Boston College. I'd never been allowed at these meetings before, but I was an adult now and able to secure the time and location of their meeting over the objections of my family. I think they worried that my adolescent temper would get the best of me and I'd try to knock him out or something like that, unleashing a lifetime of hurt and frustration within sight of deputies, bailiffs, and prosecutors. Well, if that happens, I'll already be at a courthouse, I told them. At least I should be able to secure a speedy trial. They were not amused. The truth was I didn't go there with any harmful intent. I didn't go with any intent at all. Just the inner voice that told me I didn't want the last time I heard from or about my dad to be from an obituary. Besides, I was raised Catholic, and my mother worked hard to instill in me a personal and active faith long before I knew anything about the goals and criteria. Anytime I was asked about my dad, I'd always reference, turn the other cheek, and convince whomever had done the asking that I would forgive him because that's what Jesus taught. In hindsight, it was more aspirational than factual, though I think I even started to believe it myself. Fake it till you make it, I suppose. When we finally met, the conversation was terrifying, exhausting, emotional, and even exhilarating in that near-miss-on-the-highway sort of way. My mom introduced me, as if for the first time, to Joe. He extended his hand to shake mine, but I froze. Our meeting wasn't what I expected, but I didn't necessarily expect anything. I asked for explanations of why he was never around, never in contact, and why he left in the first place. He'd preface each response by saying he had no excuse, quickly following it with something that sounded an awful lot like an excuse. As the conversation went on, the mix of anger and betrayal that I had entered with began to shift into something else, something surprising, pity, maybe even compassion. I was fighting back the painful lump in my throat, but shameful tears were pooling in his eyes. He was older than I had remembered, more feeble, his body worn by years of labor, smoking, and poor health. As our conversation concluded, I surprised myself by extending my hand to shake his, 
It's okay, Dad, I said. I forgive you. You might expect that in a podcast exploring restorative justice, what would come next would be how my dad and I reconciled and learned to be in relationship in a new way, not without the strains of our long estrangement, but taking on some new, repaired form. That didn't happen. In fact, I don't think he even apologized. I left my contact info with my father and I told him to feel free to reach out, that I'd welcome the chance to talk again, but didn't expect it. Good thing. He never did. No penance, no amends, no change to our non-existent relationship. So where's the restoration? Restorative justice often gets a bad reputation as being soft on crime and ignoring the needs of victims. If we focus only on the debt that needs to be paid, we'd be right. But how do we measure a debt? And what if the debt can never be paid? In my case, I don't know that any amount of child support or apologizing from my father would have made up for the emotional trauma, the time lost, or the toll on my family. In forgiving my father, nothing changed. And yet, everything changed. Forgiveness has a central role to play in restorative practices. But it's important we understand forgiveness properly. If you're at all like me, you were raised to understand forgiveness as something you do for or give to somebody else after they apologize. This is how we're taught reconciliation works when we're kids. Timmy, say you're sorry for taking Jose's hat without asking and give it back. I'm sorry. Jose, what do you say? It's okay, I forgive you. That's great for an orderly daycare center, but the victim is twice burdened. Once being wronged, and again by having to make that quivering little thief of a playmate feel better after he was the one to commit the offense in the first place. If our understanding of forgiveness is stuck in this place, then Jesus' instruction to turn the other cheek, or to forgive not seven times, but seventy-seven times, presents as a cumbersome duty of discipleship. But what if we looked at forgiveness as something we don't do for someone else, but for ourselves? My dad didn't seek forgiveness that day and I didn't enter the courthouse with the intention to grant it. But by God's grace expressed through the immeasurable, loving support to the people in my life, I found it, not for him, but for me. In doing so, I was relieved of the burden of letting the harm of that relationship close me off to the grace of others. I began to trust my family more and became more vulnerable in my relationships, no longer convinced that everyone was set to abandon me. In acknowledging the wounds of that absence, I opened myself up to the healing tenderness of countless friends and mentors who helped me see that experience as a part of my story, not the whole thing. The scared kid trying to hide his hurt and bury his anger suddenly had a new truth to cling to. While my relationship with my dad wasn't necessarily restored, my relationships with my God, myself, and others was. This idea of transforming trauma found me in my first professional role after college. I was blessed to be placed by the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, a year-long postgraduate service program, as a case manager at Homeboy Industries, the world's largest gang intervention organization. Thousands of gang-affiliated offenders, known more commonly and affectionately simply as the homies, receive services there every year. Through job training, mental health and substance abuse counseling, and an array of programs that offer healing, community building, and learning through a therapeutic and supportive environment, Homeboy is imbued with restorative practices, policies, and actions that not only repair previous harm, but also lay the foundation that the same harm won't be revisited upon oneself or others. A slogan of Homeboy used to be, quote, nothing stops a bullet like a job, end quote. And while jobs are important, the community of kinship, 
what we might know as goal four, is really what allows for transformation. An employed homie might reoffend, Father Greg, its founder, likes to say, but a homie who has been shown in the mirror the truth of who they are, exactly what God had in mind at their making, that's a healed homie, one whose pain is transformed and won't be transmitted. All of the homies who walk through the doors at Homeboy Industries carry with them not only a criminal record, but also trauma stemming from poverty, violence in the home, substance abuse, turbulent immigration or refugee experiences, and a lethal absence of hope. Understanding the nexus of these factors helps us to increase our capacity for empathy and compassion for those who may have committed crimes. While poor choices were certainly made by folks receiving services at Homeboy, we can see that not all choices are made quite so freely as others. In addition to deepening our compassion, recognizing the realities in which the clients live help us to, in the words of Goal 3, Criterion 3, quote, analyze and work to eradicate social structures, practices, systems, and values that perpetuate racism and other injustices, end quote. This reminds us that the things we carry often carry us, and many times to places that we don't intend or want. Father Greg Boyle, the Jesuit priest who founded the organization, writes, quote, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done, end quote. I would add that we're also more than the worst thing that's been done to us. It's a message I repeat to students in the classroom and especially on immersion and on retreats, where students are often most vulnerable with one another. Leveraging the wisdom of Criterion 3 helps our community to not only think of how structural injustices might encourage criminal behavior at a place like Homeboy, but more broadly, how one's experience and the many factors of one's life might influence actions that cause harm on a day-to-day -day basis. For example, the reluctance to show affection to a family member, biases that we carry about others, stereotypes that we trade in, fear of building community across friend groups, hesitation to stand in solidarity with a colleague or friend. If we start from a position that hurt people hurt people, we can move away from seeking retribution to those who have caused harm and towards repairing the underlying conditions for the harm itself. In the first episode of this series on restorative practices, Dr. Sue walked us through the various tiers. Most of the homies come to Homeboy through Tier 3, some sort of intervention in need to make amends for serious wrongdoing, often after a period of removal and sometimes ordered by a court. But during their time at Homeboy, they find themselves in a place that lives and breathes Tier 1, that foundational community that supports and cares for its members so thoroughly that harm becomes foreign. Students who go on the Homeboy immersion especially get a taste of this themselves. Several years ago, when our school partnered with Cristo Rey Jesuit High School in San Jose, I watched students across grade levels, racial and ethnic lines, and from various economic backgrounds begin to lay bare their most vulnerable selves with one another. It culminated in a final night of tearful testimonies, ranging from contrite confession about previous wrongdoings to profound expressions of gratitude for healing that they'd received during the immersion and with one another. I tried to wrap the conversation several times so the kids could go to bed and we could make our early morning flight, always a challenge. But the conversation persisted. Students truly seeing themselves and one another for the first time were reluctant to exit the sacred ground upon which they stood. Silence the crowds in the presence of the holy, Jesus reminds his doubters, and the stones themselves will cry out. Restorative practices create the fertile ground out of which the voices of joy can spread and joy is notoriously hard to silence. This doesn't mean that at the end of an immersion, everyone becomes best friends, or after a retreat, parents and children enjoy perfect relationships. 
but restorative practices don't demand the absence of the unavoidable conflicts of life. Father Greg often reminds us that, quote, we need a better God. That is, one not crafted in our own image of smallness, pettiness, and desire for revenge. Rather, restorative justice invites us to begin to see ourselves, one another, and our world in God's image, worthy of reverence and tenderness, and invites us to engage in the unavoidable conflicts of life in a way that promotes dignity through understanding, compassion, and grace. Thank you, Matt, for sharing about how important faith and restorative practices and perspectives have been in your life and in the communities to which you belong. And this concludes another episode of Mission and Meaning. If you have any questions or thoughts, please reach out directly to me, Ben Sue, at bsue at shschools.org or contact the Office of Mission, Culture, and Strategy at omcs at shschools.org.